Well, if you have a Bible, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we continue our study of this amazing letter from Paul. Um, when, while I was doing the coursework phase of my PhD a few years ago, they had assigned a massive amount of reading. Uh, over two and a half years, I had to read about 30,000 pages of material. Now, when you're reading thousands of pages of stuff every month, you learn a thing or two about finding out what's important to the author and how to get to it quickly. About 5,000 pages into this process, I realized this new technique, and, and some of you may know this, but you know, you know I was never an academic type, so just trying to get a PhD was just a, a miracle in and of itself. So it took me a while to figure out that when you read something, uh, you can pretty much read the introduction really well, read the conclusion really well, and based on just those two things, you can figure out what the author's trying to say. Any good writer, including Paul the Apostle, is going to begin by saying, this is what's really important about what I want to talk to you about, and then the rest of the letter or the book is them unpacking it, and at the conclusion they say, these are the things I just got through telling you, and they're really important. Well, reading the Bible really, especially the New Testament letters, is not very different. Chapter 1 of 2 Timothy started off like this. Paul says in verse 8, share in suffering for the gospel. Verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words you've heard from me. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This morning, we reach the last chapter of 2 Timothy and listen to what Paul says. I charge you in the presence of God... Preach the word, endure suffering, fulfill your ministry. Now, Paul uses slightly different words, but he's saying the same exact thing. What really makes this significant for you and I is that these aren't simply Paul's last words to Timothy. These are Paul's last words that we know of that were ever recorded. You see, just a few months after Paul wrote this letter, could be weeks, maybe even days, Paul was executed by Rome on the Ostian Way. These are the last things. You could say the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. These are the great marching orders of the Apostle to the Gentiles, the man by whom almost single-handedly God had used to bring the gospel from the city of Jerusalem to almost the entire extent of the then-known world. These are his marching orders to Timothy, the pastor of the church of Ephesus, his marching orders to the Christians at the church at Ephesus. These are Paul's marching orders to any gospel worker or any Christian throughout all time. These are Paul's last words to the elders and the Christians of Christ's community church. Now, you may already be familiar with these last words because they're very similar to what we heard at the end of Matthew's gospel. Again, different words, but same message. These were the last marching orders of our Lord himself. Matthew 28, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So let's read Paul's take on those last words. 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. I'll read verses 1 through 8 this morning. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. So that's Paul's take on the marching orders he received from his Lord, the very same marching orders that apply to all of us. He's now changing that format and talking to a pastor and to a church. So Paul, in a sense, just picked up the mantle and passed it on to Timothy, and who Tim- Timothy passed that mantle on to other faithful men who can continue to teach that, who passed that on to other men, who passed it on to other generations of pastors through every culture, every continent, society, and political system. And to those pastors, through those churches, from those churches, through those men and women, the gospel has come to you and I if you are a Christian. The question we have to answer is this, will you fulfill your ministry? Will we, as Christ Community Church, fulfill our ministry? This morning, we're just going to look at the, um, the first five verses of what we read as Paul issues the command to faithful gospel ministry in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul offers an explanation for faithful gospel ministry. And then finally rounds it out in verse 5 with a reminder of what faithful gospel ministry is going to require from us. So God, Paul gives a command, he explains the command, and he closes it, closes it, closes it with a reminder. First, let's take at the command itself right there in verses 1 and 2, and I want you to notice three things right away about this command. We're going to look at its content, its character, and the context of the command. So the command is, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's the judge of the living and the dead, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, you might just think that the command itself is the phrase, preach the word, but in actual fact, the command is made up of those five commands, those five verbs, preach, be ready, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, certainly, the primacy of God's word is the overarching aim of Paul's thrust. After all, we learned last week that God's word is the the vessel of truth and change for us, so that is the driving sense. But Timothy, he says, we must be ready in season and out of season. And I love how vivid God's word is because when I read things like that, now, especially you people who like fruits and vegetables, you understand this concept. When, when fruits are in season, oh man, they're, they're tasty, they're delicious, they're sweet, and, and you want them. And when fruits are out of season, you know, don't buy the strawberries, right? Uh, this is not the season for kiwi or whatever because you know it's not going to be quite as delicious and wonderful. Paul says, when it comes to God's word, though, it is always in season. You preach it, you teach it, you love it, you live it, you apply it. When it's delicious and seasonal and it's sought after and enjoyed, and even when it's considered 
not seasonal, when it's not very pleasant, and people rather have something sweeter and they want to ignore it. Be ready. In season, out of season. What's interesting, Paul doesn't mention or define the season, does he? What I mean by that, there's three possible seasons Paul could have been referring to. He could have been referring to Timothy, whether it's the season, whether in your own life, whether it's seasonal to love the word or not, you need to preach it. Are you, are you enjoying the word, experiencing its richness, its riches, then preach it? And we know what he's talking about. There are times, man, if you're a Christian reading God's word, it's like sweetness to your soul. You're loving it, right? You're just like getting things from the words pop out of the page. You're like, yeah, this is awesome. And there are times, if we can be honest, it feels like it's out of season. You're just reading it and it's just, eh. you're, you're doing it to check off your reading app or your reading plan and just, you're not feeling much there, but you're still doing it. Because even if it's in season or out of season, you want the word of God. You don't want to just get into the word. You want the word to get into you. And that's the funny thing about the, the hunger for God's word, isn't it? It's the, it's the most unusual hunger you can think of. It's the only hunger that when you feed that hunger, you get even more hungry for it. And it's the only hunger when you neglect it, it goes away. Right? At least that's how I find it in my experience. The more I read of God's word the more I start to want to know more of God's word and the less I pay attention to God's word, I find the less it draws me and less I want of it. It's a very unique hunger that way. So Paul is saying, Timothy, regardless of the season of your personal life, whether it's in season or out of season, preach it. Preach it to yourself, especially preach it to your people. That's a legitimate way that Paul could have talked about it. But maybe he wasn't talking about Timothy's personal devotional life when he's talking about if it's in season or out of season. He might have meant the church itself. We know the church at Ephesus, man, it was up and down all over the place for many years. So maybe the season that Paul was referring to was a season of life in the church. Pastor Timothy, if your people want the word, great, you're stoked. Your job is all that much easier. But even if they don't want the word, Maybe especially when they don't want the word, you preach it because they need it. It doesn't matter if they want it. You just preach it. Moms, dads, you understand this. You understand this very well. Let me ask you a quick, quick question to put it in perspective. Do you just let your kids eat whatever they want? Right? No, of course not, right? I mean, imagine, what, what would that be like if you said, kids, you can just eat whatever you want. I know what would happen. It'd be like ho-hos for breakfast, pizza for lunch, and slurpees for dinner. And you would be considered a horrible parent if you let your kids do that. As a parent, you make sure you got your fruits and your veggies and you're getting your servings every, of, of all those things. But yet, moms and dads, yet... Would you let your kids eat spiritual Slurpees every Wednesday and Sunday at a church you attend? Right? No, you shouldn't. I heard a young girl right here saying, or young, was that you? Yeah, was that, <laughs> give me a high five. He's like, no, where's what happened to your hand? All right, it's in his sleeves. All right, a high five. He says, no, we shouldn't just get spiritual Slurpees, right? We, we understand this concept. 
<laughs> He's getting really interactive. Yes, he understands the concept that whether you want it or not, we need the word of God. Just like when you feed your children, you feed them what's good for them, not whether or not they want it or not, because they need it. So Paul says, preach the word, be in season and out of season. Now, it could have been Timothy's personal life. Maybe he was referring to the season of life in the church. Maybe it wasn't either of those two, but Paul was writing to the Christians at Ephesus. Maybe it's the season of the culture they find themselves in. You preach the word. If the, if the culture happens to be friendly or hostile to the gospel, it doesn't matter. You guys preach the word. We'll talk a little bit more about this in point number two. But I find that this is really important, friends. When the culture begins to shift, that is not the time for the church to pursue relevancy to be up, keeping up with the culture. We have seen that happen. And what happens is the church actually becomes irrelevant to the culture. Because if the church is going to follow the culture and not be prophetic to the culture, why does the culture even need the church? When the culture begins to shift on areas of biblical truth and, and, and what the Bible teaches... We don't seek relevancy. That's when you double down to proclaim the truth so the culture knows what's right and what's wrong. We'll talk a little bit about that, that later, but let me move on. So Paul says, preach the word, be ready, in season, out of season, rebuke, reprove, exhort. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, the, the content of the command. Now, those are some pretty strong words, aren't they? Rebuke, reprove, exhort we like, because that, that's kind of encouraging. So we're, that's the content of what Paul's talking about. What we really need to talk about is the character of these commands. Because if we just left it there, you might get the idea, and we do see this among some Christians, that faithful gospel ministry means you become argumentative, abrasive, and obnoxious with people. And that is not Paul's intent. So the content of the command is clear. Preach the word, in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, exhort. Let's talk about the character of the commands that Paul's talking about. We see that at the tail end of verse 2 there. Look at that last phrase. Um, with complete patience and teaching. You see, Paul's not piling on these words, reprove, rebu rebuke, exhort, so that we learn to be forceful, get in their face, and be obnoxious. That would be the opposite of what Paul intends. That would be foolishness, right? Furthermore, Paul instructed Timothy how we are to deal with people who oppose us. Paul instructed us how we are to deal with people who oppose us, correct? 2 Timothy 2.25, what did he say? That the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach, being gentle, enduring them. <laughs> I just walked into, I like did the opposite this week. I just, I did what we probably shouldn't do. I like reposted something on Facebook. <laughs> oh, man, Ken, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I just walked right into it and man, it just came. But here's the truth. I, I kind of thought about that and I haven't given my response yet because I'm waiting for all my, all the trolls to just slam me and then I want to deal with all of them at one time um, <laughs> rather than just one at a time. And, I, and, and there's some things I want to say, but you know what? And think, Ken, I think, I think what I started that, because the way I responded to my friend, well, my friend of me maybe at this point, I don't know if I was very, I mean, I called them in, I called, like, I used the word insecure. I said, why are you freaking, you know? And so what do you expect, what do I expect this guy to do? Publicly, I just kind of shamed him and he's going to come out, he's going to come out throwing his blows. And that's what happened. 
And, uh, and, and it was really, I mean, he was really kind of uncharitable in his comments, but I, I don't, I don't, but he's, I think he's right because I wasn't 2 Timothy 2.25 with him. I wasn't gentle and kind. I kind of slammed him. I got to own that. So I got to respond to that. I wanna, I, I've been talking with this brother for years, and I don't want to lose it because I was cranky because I stayed up past my bedtime and posted something I maybe shouldn't have. So guys, you can hold me accountable, right? If you follow me on Facebook, help me, help me be non-quarrelsome, help me be loving and kind and gentle. Anyway, you should never work through your issues from the pulpit. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Rather, friends... What, what, what Paul is saying, he's not saying be harsh, even though those words sound harsh, right? Like reprove, rebuke, and, and that's because a lot of times that's what we do when we actually confront people. We don't do it biblically. We, we, we use these words to justify being kind of a, a jerk to people because Paul's not encouraging that at all. What actually Paul is saying is he's making the call for a flexible way in the way you deal with your opponents, in other words, if you were here last week, Paul is making an argument that we have to be working off with the intellect, with the emotions, and with the volitions of people. So reprove, right? Depending upon your translation, some of you may have, I think it's NIV, it might be King James or New King James, they translate that as con, uh, convince. They, they translate reprove as convince, as in helping people have an understanding of the intellectual arguments that you're making. So when you read reprove, it's not this like, you know, veins bulging kind of fist pounding, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to fix your wagon, as much as it is, hey, brother, sister, let me convince you of why your thinking is off or your arguments are wrong here. So there's reprove or convince, approaching the intellect, rebuke, uh, sometimes people do get into sin and, and their actions are showing it. And so, yeah, we have to correct them sometimes. And that could be in their doctrine or their lifestyle. It could go either one. But what Paul is saying is, hey, you got to convince people. Sometimes you got to correct people, right? So reprove and rebuke the, the intellect as well as the volition, how we think and how we behave. And then he says, but also exhort. And, and think of the exhortation. Like, man, when you get exhorted, and you know what that means. You get encouraged. Doesn't that feel good? When someone's encouraging you. So we have here Paul saying the intellect, the volitions, and the emotions all matter when we're engaging people. So some people you gotta convince them, some people you gotta correct them, some people you gotta comfort them. So what he's saying is basically what we talked about last week. The head, the heart, the life all have to be addressed when we preach the word. He's not making the case to be this angry person who's always trying to fix everyone's wagon. He's saying be flexible in how you deal with people. Some people, they're going to be tormented by doubts and they need convincing arguments. Others, they've fallen into sin and they, they need to be rebuked, but still others are going to be haunted by fears, and they need comfort and encouraging words to trust the gospel. Timothy, Christians, you got to preach the gospel that way, to convince, to correct, and to comfort, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's how we got to be preaching the gospel. Don't be foolish. Be gracious, right? Win people over. Don't run people over. That's what we got to do. And that, that's so important in our culture that's getting more and more polarized. We got to win them, not run them over. But friends, this is hard work, isn't it? It's just so much easier to just slam people or whatever. And, and, and what do they call it? Flame on them. I don't know if they say that anymore, flaming on them or whatever. But 
this takes hard work. Number one, it takes hard work intellectually because you have to understand their arguments. You have to understand the argument. You have to dive into their perspective, understand where they're coming from. Am I saying something right? This is hard work emotionally. You've got to deal with your own pride. You've got to deal when I want to be seen as right. I want to win this. No, that is the wrong thing. That is sinful, emotional pride. You need to keep that in check. You've got to love people. It's amazing what you can say to people when they know you love them. As a matter of fact, there's almost nothing you can't say to someone when they know you love them. And so Paul says, when you preach the word, you've got to be ready in season and out of season. You've got to convince them. Do the hard work of understanding. Convince them. If they are living in outright sin, have the courage to correct them because it's going to be hard. And, and, and have the love for them to bring them comfort to trust the gospel. That's the character of the command. So there's the content, there's the character. Now let's talk about the, 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 the context. Uh, and the last thing I forgot, I forgot, is actually the driving thing, though, Paul says, is with all patience and teaching, right? So, guys, we have to do this constantly. You're going to constantly have to try and convince people because their doubts always plague them. You're going to constantly have to try and correct people because sin is so tempting. You're going to constantly have to comfort people because fears are so real. And to do that, you've got to be patient. Come on, be comforted already. I mean, is that going to work? It doesn't work, right? We got to be patient. What, what, uh, to what degree we be patient? Well, how patient is God with you? How, how quickly do you get stuff? Right? So Paul says, do all these things with patience, and notice it says, and with teaching. The, the idea is that this has got to be driven by God's word, not your opinions, not the stuff you think is right, right? With the teaching from God's word, that's the character of the command. So the, the, the context, so finally, Paul says, and we see that in the very beginning of the, the, the verse here, I'm charging you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and dead, right? Like, no pressure, Paul. Just, just invoke two of the three members of the Trinity to be witnesses against your charge on me, right? No, no pressure there. That, that God and Jesus, the Father and the Son are going to be holding me accountable to this. Now, you might be hearing that and say, man, whoa, if that's the level of scrutiny uh, for gospel ministry, I'm not going to be involved in any gospel ministry. I'll just be a, a covert Christian. You know, I, I'm fine. I'm, I got my fire insurance. I'm going to heaven. I'm just going to keep my head low, keep my nose to the grindstone, and I'm just going to get through this life, and, and I, I don't want to kind of scrutiny. I don't want to put my head on the block, let other people do that kind of thing. But the Bible doesn't allow for that. The truth of the matter is, Paul is just making explicit here what the Bible constantly teaches, and that is that God sees you. And what I mean by that, He sees you. God sees you more fully and truly than you even see yourself. You don't even see you as clearly and truly as God sees you. Hebrews 4.13 says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Job 34.21 in the New Living Translation, they say it really nicely, God watches how people live, 
He sees everything they do. Psalm 33, 13 to 15, the psalmist writes, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Friends, let me ask you a question. Knowing that God knows and sees every action you perform, every thought that you think, every emotion that you feel, knowing that God sees all and knows all, does that either bring you great comfort or fear? Because it should do at least one. If it doesn't do either of those, you're not paying attention to what I'm saying here, right? And that's okay. You can ignore me, but don't ignore the word of God. If knowing that God knows and sees everything about you, either doesn't bring you comfort or fear, you're not paying attention because it's supposed to do one. And one of my favorite things is what says in Malachi 3.16. Let me read it to you in the New Living Translation because it's so, I love the way they, they render it. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with each other, and the Lord listened to what they said. In his presence, a scroll, a scroll of remembrance was written to record the names of those who feared him and always thought about the honor of his name. Guys, you listen to that? The Lord, the Lord says, oh, wait, shh, listen down there. They're talking about me. Oh, and they're, 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 how much they love me and want to bring glory to what I'm doing. Hey, bring, bring that scroll. Write their names in that so that on that day, I mean, they're going to forget, but I'm going to bring that out and say, you remember all that stuff. Friends, how, how big is your scroll? How full is your scroll? On that day... Are you going to be that person when they're like, oh, Dennis, Dennis, where, where's Dennis? All right, here's, here's Dennis. Let's bring that out, right? And they see Carl. All right, Carl. All right, Carl, look at your scroll. Are you going to be that person? They're like, oh, oh wait, wait, wait. I think I, I got this post-it note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, that one time, yeah, that, that was good. Next. Right, how, how is your scroll? Maybe it's time to start making sure there's something in it. Paul says, preach the word. If you don't have anyone to preach that to, preach it to yourself. Preach it to yourself every morning. The great truth of the gospel, that you are destined for just damnation because of our sin and our rebellion and our selfishness. And God himself said, mm, I'm going to make a way for you. Will you receive it? It's my son. Man, preach the gospel to yourself if you don't have anyone else to preach it to. So Paul says that's the command. So that, that, that was the, the content of the command, the character of the command, and the context of the command. We're doing this before the Lord. And then Paul, in verses 3 and 4, gives the explanation for why he had to give uh, Timothy and all Christians such a strong command. Let's look at it, verse uh, 3. Um, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So, so Timothy, you Christians at Ephesus, you, you gospel workers, you believers of all time and all places, the reason you need to be ready to, to convince and to correct and to comfort with the gospel is because there's coming a time they're not going to endure sound teaching. 
why won't they endure sound teaching, Paul? He tells us, because they have itching ears and will pursue teachers that will scratch their itch. What a, what a vivid metaphor, isn't it? Itch, I mean, I don't know if I've had itching ears, but like sometimes my toes get really itchy, right? You guys, and you know what it is to have an itch, don't you? And sometimes it's like, I don't know what it is. I have to like take my shoes off, my socks. I got to scratch it. And man, when you scratch an itch, it feels so good. You're like, yeah, ooh, that feels good. Now, depending on the source of the itch, though, what does the scratching do? Yeah, it makes it worse. So at first, you're like, oh, man, I need that. Whew. But depending on the source, it only inflames it, and then you got to scratch again and over and over. And that actual scratching can make it worse. Anyone ever had poison oak? No, no, some, come on. Yeah, oh, you know that feeling, right? You scratch it, and it feels so good, but you don't know how much you're damaging your skin, and you're spreading the oils, and then you got to scratch here, and it's just... The, the itch can drive us to madness. I love that Paul saying, he says, they have an itch that the gospel will not scratch. And so they look for teachers, they pile up teachers that will scratch the itch for them. Remember, friends, Paul is not saying that these people will abandon the faith, reject Jesus, and leave the church and just, just, just watch TED Talks now or, or go to Burning Man festivals. That's not what's happening here. They're not going to reject the gospel. They're going to refashion it. They're going to make it something that's appealing to them. They're going to not change the core necessarily. Well, they're, they're going to completely change the core and the content of it. Something more user-friendly, less suffering, more fulfillment kind of thing, more God, more self-esteem than God-esteem kind of thing. And, and people are going to listen to that because that scratches their itch. There's a book by um, sociologists out at... Uh, I think he was at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Christian Smith. He's not a Christian. He's got that name, but he's a sociologist, and, and he did a, a study because of the massive growth of Christianity starting in the late 90s. We call it the, the numerical 90s, where you just had mega churches and complexes going up all over the place. So he thought he'd do a sociological experiment to find out what was going on. In his book, Soul Searching, that first came out in 2008, I believe, here is a sociologist looking at hundreds of churches all over the United States, interviewing thousands of men and women in these churches, young and old. And this sociologist, a trained professional who knows how to track trends in society, came to this conclusion. He said, in the majority of the churches in America, they have, not, they have abandoned historic Christianity. Now, Christian Smith is neither a believer nor is he an antagonist to Christianity per se. I really am. He's one of my favorite sociologists. He says, in the majority of these churches, they have abandoned historical Christianity. It is not the gospel of atonement from sin and reconciliation with a just and holy God to be made right. That's not what's being proclaimed, and that's not what the DNA of the church is. What they have replaced historic Christianity with, and he coined the phrase, some of you may have heard it, is moral therapeutic deism. That we gather and we need to be good people with values. God makes us feel good and our good values make us feel good about ourselves. And God's part of the mix, but he's kind of a removed deity like a deist. Whereas historic Christianity believes in a personal God and by whom we are accountable to and responsible to, that is not what's happening in the majority of churches in the United States. Boy, 
This is exactly what Paul's been talking about. So he says, Timothy, the answer to this problem is to preach the word. But friends, here's what's really scary about this, and it's in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He's talking about them, these people with this itch that the gospel no longer scratches, so they accumulate other teachers to scratch that itch, right? And look at verse 4. So they have these teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Guys, this is where our doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture is so important, What that means is that Scripture is true, even down to the very grammatical structure of God's Word is worthy of paying attention to, because we see this truth coming out here. They will turn away from listening to the truth. That's a future active plural indicative. In other words, this is something that's going to happen, and the subject will perform the action of the verb. They're going to turn away, and it's going to happen. It's indicative. They're going to turn away. And notice what he says in the next line and wander into myths. Paul uses a future passive plural indicative. If you know anything about grammar, when a verb is in a passive voice, the action of the verb happens to the subject. So they, in the active voice, they refuse to listen to truth, and then something then happens to them. They wander off into error. When you actively reject truth, my friends, You will be the victims of falsehood, whether you choose to be or not. You cannot sit and hear God's word over and over again without it having some kind of impact. Either that impact will be conscious to you because you're giving your full attention to it, you're giving your affections to it, you're you're warming your heart to love the word of God, and you're giving it your application to it, you're applying it to your life, so you're aware of the change. Or that change will take place without you even realizing it. But make no mistake, you cannot remain the same. When you're confronted with truth, you must either embrace it or you will reject it and wander into error. Paul, this dynamic is all through scripture. Let me read you one more to make the case. Romans chapter 1 verse 21. For although they knew God, he's talking about humanity, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So again, it's the active voice. They actively chose not to do these things. And look what happened. But they became passive voice. They became futile in their thinking and their hearts were darkened. They chose to not honor God or give him thanks. And as a result, They became futile in their thinking and their hearts were darkened. Just as we see in 2 Timothy, they actively rejected hearing the truth and as a result, they themselves wandered off into error without even knowing it. And Paul says, you got to stop that. The only way you can do this is preach the word. Friends, the the problem is when we reject belief in God, it's not that you you don't believe in anything. The problem is that you believe in everything. And and to be clear, it's not that um, people will outright reject Christianity or reject a belief in God as if what Paul is saying to only applies to avowed atheists. That actually is pretty rare. The scary thing, again, is that Paul is warning here in 2 Timothy what he says applies to people who profess to be Christians but actually do nothing with applying the gospel to their lives. The very gospel they confess, they're not applying to their lives. Friends, that's one of the reasons why, as leaders of the church, the elders are putting forth a church covenant. That's one of the reasons we're putting together a church covenant and wanting us to surround ourselves around it. 
because a church covenant makes explicit what is so implicitly known but so often neglected. And we need to be reminded we don't want to wander off into myth. And a church covenant's job is to say, look, of all the commands of Christ, of how we live, we at least agree this is what it is to live as Christians. And this is why Paul doubles down on the command to preach the word. Lastly, final point, is a reminder of what, kind of, what, what this kind of ministry will require from you and I. Verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. By the way, that's the fifth time Paul has told Timothy to do that in these four chapters. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry as for you. That's kind of a common phrase in the pastoral epistles. It, it takes different forms, but it says something. It's basically, you might hear Paul say, you, however, or don't be this way, be this way instead. In other words, Paul is constantly contrasting how Timothy, how these Christians need to respond compared to how the world or the people in the church who are ignoring the gospel should respond. If you're a note taker, write down 2 Timothy 2.1, 2 Timothy 3.10, 2 Timothy 3.14, in each case, Paul is saying, but you don't do this. You do this instead. Don't be like the ones who pick and choose which gospel they're going to buy into. Don't be the ones who pick and choose whether or not they will suffer because you're all going to suffer because that's the gospel message. Don't be like the ones who feed only their ungodly, unrighteous desires and don't feed righteous desires. Don't be like the ones who lose their confidence, run from suffering, forsake the mission, and fail their ministry. Friends, this, this, is, like the, this is the original call to keep calm and carry on. Right? This is the original one right here, and Paul offers three more. Uh, um, you could say commands because they're verbs, but he offers three more uh, strong encouragements. First, he writes, be sober-minded. I like that image. Well, what's the first thing you lose when you're just, I mean, just sloppy drunk? What's the first thing you lose? Right? Self-control, right? We're, we could, but we're not going to share our stories of back when we, well, no, no, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Stop. <Just. laughs> when, when you're drunk, the first thing you lose is self-control. And Paul is implying, as bad as it is, to be stumbling all over the place, looking like a fool when you're physically drunk, how much worse to be emotionally, mentally, spiritually, psychologically drunk. What a tragedy that is. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul wrote to the, the, the Ephesians, these people, do not be, don't be drunk with wine, rather be filled with the Spirit. What's he saying? Don't let wine and alcohol control your life. Let the Spirit of God control your life. So be sober-minded so you're awake, you're aware, you're sharp as a tack, you're not dull as a drunk. Second thing, he says, endure suffering. Now, Paul is not talking about being a milk toast Christian, being a, you know, like an ascetic or, or just, uh, I need to suffer because that's, that's what we do as Christians. We just suffer. What he's talking about, what he's calling Timothy and you and I by application to is to not avoid the suffering that will inevitably come from faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about, whatever form that might take. And we know that because the next phrase gives us the contextual clue. He says, do the work of an evangelist. In other words, the, the, an evangelist, it, it, it pretty much predominantly is a kind of Christian term, but the actual word just means a proclaimer of good news, and it got co-opted by the church because we had the good news, the gospel. So he's saying, do the work of an evangelist. Don't avoid the suffering that comes with it. And the way you do that is to be sober-minded. 
So all these things work together. And finally, that last phrase, fulfill your ministry. And in the common Greek of the day, that word typically meant to pay back a debt or fulfill your obligations. So the question we ask is, so how do we pay back our debt? How do we fulfill our obligations? Well, we live lives of self-control, so we are awake to the opportunities that are going to come into our lives. And we are willing to endure the fallout and the suffering that comes from taking advantage of those opportunities to preach the word of God in our culture, whether it's in season or out of season. This is what's required for us to convince, to, to correct, to comfort the world, our friends, the church, whatever it might be, especially when they might be getting tired, bored, or hostile to the true gospel. God, give us grace to live these words from Paul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul and his life. It'd be easy to say that none of us could be like Paul because he was, after all, Paul, but, but Paul was not any different than any one of us here. He was a man like us with, with baggage in his past. If anything, he was a man much worse than any of us, guilty of murder, guilty of destroying families, guilty of persecuting your people, and yet, not only did you forgive him, you transformed him and blessed him. And Father, we pray that we would listen carefully to the words of this brother of ours who knew what it was like to be used by you and make a difference. Father, help his words from so long ago encourage and inspire us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.